and welcome back to Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and I'm pleased to be joined by the other members of the clinical team. So a big hello to Sam. Hi, everybody. And hi to Amy. Hi, guys. As always, we're going to be chatting about a topic related to the field of diagnostic imaging. And this month, we're delving deeper into endoscopy, or more specifically, laparoscopy. To help us do that, we are thrilled to welcome Becky Keeble to the podcast. Becky is the co-founder of Simply Keyhole, a laparoscopy training service advising practices from start to finish on everything they need to know to set up their own laparoscopic service. From clarifying the equipment options they need to providing in-practice training for their vets, nurses and support team, when not in practice, Becky is the clinical director for a multi-branch veterinary practice in Edinburgh. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast, Becky. Hi, thanks for having me. I know I've just given a really brief overview of your your current roles, the the many of them that you have, Um, but is there any chance you could tell us more about your career and how your interest in laparoscopy came about? Yeah, absolutely. So I graduated 10 years ago, um, having seen practice at ICR Vets as a student. I got offered a job when I was there with my externship. So I've been there since I graduated. Um, And Rory was my boss at the time. And we set up Simply Keyhole together a few years ago. So he had just um, started Keyhole Surgery. He was the second vet in Scotland to be offering it. Um, So he'd gone through the training you know what what there was then which was a cadaver course and then having to navigate the equipment yourself and figure it all out and then get it in practice and then be the only one in practice that knew anything about keyhole surgery and um trying to get that that going and the benefits of it out there to the patient so um he went through all of that he trained me in keyhole surgery after i'd been in the practice for a year or so um and i just was astounded by the benefits of it to the patients you know seeing a keyhole spay recover next to an open spay no matter how experienced and brilliant the surgeon is and how small their bitch spay hole is 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 really incredible so um my love of laparoscopy grew from there um done some more advanced courses as well so we do the occasional more advanced surgery but really my bread and butter still now is the keyhole space cryptorchid castrates liver biopsies all these kind of routine fairly straightforward and very safe things that we do in practice every day um and yeah simply keyhole was born a few years ago just out of our desire to make this easier for practices we know how difficult it is to start a new service and how hard it can be to bring change to a team when We've always done it the old way and they've always been fine. So why would we start trying to do something different that's going to be a hassle to everybody? So we want to remove that hassle and all of the the challenges that come with it, really. So from, as you say, from setting up the equipment and knowing what to even go for um, to finding a better way of learning, because a cadaver course where you get to do half an ovary up to me on a dead dog or fox or something is really not the same as doing it in practice on your own with kit that you're not familiar with for the first time on a on a live patient. So We've had lots of really positive feedback. We've trained 60 or 70 practices now in the last few years, um, despite the breaking COVID. So I think we're, we're doing all right. And we absolutely love teaching and just getting, you know, the, the confidence out there really into the whole team to recommend these. And, and we've got lots of practices that are at, you know, 90, 95, even some are 100% conversion, um, you know, not doing any routine space at all now, which is lovely to see. So yeah it's becoming more and more popular and makes us very proud that's just incredible especially with you saying you've got some practice which are 90 95% complete conversion from doing the traditional so what are the benefits then of using laparoscopic 
um, surgical techniques compared to the traditional surgical techniques that everyone has typically learned at uni and uh, what how what what's the reason for converting over to laparoscopic so the main things that the studies will prove is the significant reduction in pain scores that we see um, intraoperatively and postoperatively, be it in the immediate post-op period or, or in the days afterwards. Um, so that's really clear in the literature from studies that are done in both dogs and cats. Um, significant reductions in post-op complications, so wound breakdowns, post-op infections, um, and significantly quicker recovery periods. So the, the clients absolutely love them because you can have your dog back to normal within two to three days. You don't have to rest them because you don't have to worry about ligatures slipping um, because we're using cautery usually um, to do these procedures. So we recommend resting them for two or three days and then they go back to normal. Um most of our patients won't need buster collars and suits and things. Um, we use local anaesthetic at the port sites and buried stitches. So it's very rare for dogs to have any interest in the wounds. Um, there's always the odd one. <laughs> there always will be. But most of the time, again, the lack of needing a buster collar and things is a massive advantage to uh, to owners. Um, and we find for the practice, well, a lot of owners are asking about it now. So they'll have had chemo surgery themselves or they'll have heard that, you know, of someone that's had it in the human field and wonder if it's possible for for our patients so we find there's a massive drive for it some sometimes it comes from within surgeons in the practice um a, a lot of the time it comes from practices coming to us saying or oh, quite a few clients are asking now or going elsewhere for it so can you help us get started and um, so that's really exciting to see I think owners you know especially with the internet and everything now are more and more savvy with these things and they want to do this is an elective procedure you know they want to make it as guilt-free and, and minimally invasive as possible so um, yeah, lots of benefits and, and definitely benefits for the practice as well. So we see a massive improvement in retention and recruitment. You know, it's a real attractive thing for staff to come and work somewhere that's got a good service like this. It shows the practice forward thinking. It attracts medics as well. So you can do a liver biopsy and, you know, minimally invasive, which makes a huge difference. And there's lots of other diagnostic capabilities that you've got as well once you've got the initial kit. So um, something new for the staff to learn you know vets get to that point where they get a bit stuck in their ways and they want something else to learn and they might look elsewhere or a different job but if they can start to learn keyhole surgery in the same practice that can help with retention and I heard you mention there that the medics are using the laparoscopic equipment as well so typically when I think of laparoscopic procedures I always think of bitch bays those overectomies um, so what else can you use the lapar- laparoscopic techniques for yeah, so the bitch space is definitely the bread and butter. You know, we do three or four of those every single day at our big practice. Um, but we'll probably do maybe a couple of liver biopsies a month. So your patients that you've got where your liver enzymes are up one month, you do them again a month later and they're still gone up. Most clients are reluctant to open those patients up for liver biopsies. We all know the FNA usually doesn't tell us much depending on what's going on so being able to get a a decent histology sample is really vital to these cases so being able to go in laparoscopically and do that is you know we're much more likely to do that if we've got the keyhole equipment than if we had to do them open um and then we have a few additional different scopes and things so we do quite a lot of cystoscopies um rhinoscopy we've got a nice otoscopy scope as well for flushing out middle ears and things so yeah lots of lots of fun things we can do with the kit obviously not as frequently as the the day in day out keyhole space but um yeah lots of other things and endoscopic um laparoscopic assisted biopsies as well um so we can go in and just basically do an exploratory laparoscopy so pop the pop the scope in have a look grab a bit of gut take a sample of it 
um, just by cutting over a small incision over it and then pop it back in again. So again, much less invasive for patients than a, um, an X-lap. I was just um, coming back to what you were saying about the way that you train practices and, and how it's different from doing um, procedures on cadavers and half a spay on a fox. What's different about your teaching technique and how are you yeah. training practices that get such great results? So I guess it starts from the beginning. So we'll always have that initial conversation and the equipment selection and things with the whether it's the lead surgeon or the clinical director or the owner of the practice. Um, but then we'll get the head nurse or whoever's in charge of, of ordering the equipment and everything on site, make sure that they're happy with it all when it's arrives. And that might be via FaceTime, helping them unpack it and set it up um, and making sure they've got a list of all the additional bits and bobs that are handy to have from their normal wholesaler as well, just to make things a bit more efficient for them. Um, we send the practices a laparoscopic simulator for a few weeks on loan before we go down. So that just helps the surgeons with that kind of 2D perception, which can be really challenging when you first start. So we, we definitely see a difference if the surgeons have done that for a few weeks before we go. Um, just with when you try and pick up something that you think it's close to you and it's actually further away or vice versa. So that makes a big difference if they've done that. Um, and we've got a lot of online resources as well. So we'll give them a log on to our website um, and then they can go online and there's lots of videos on there um, and sort of PDF files and things of the ovariectomy and more advanced procedures for when, they've, when they're comfortable with that as well. And then lots of sort of cleaning and packing and um, advice for the, um, the nursing team as well. Um, and then I guess the main thing is we go into practice for two full days. So we'll, we'll go in, start first thing in the morning, make sure all the kit's ready to go, everything's sterilised um, as it should be, help them, you know, plug the bits in the right places when they first use it, because that's always very intimidating for the nursing team. Um, and we're there to help support them with the anaesthetic and the prep and all that sort of thing as well. So everything that just comes with it that can always be a bit nerve wracking for the, the rest of the team um, and then obviously we do the procedures with the surgeons. So we'll train two or three surgeons usually while we're there, do two procedures per day, um, usually ovariectomies. There's the odd practice that don't do as many spays as, as some. So we might do a liver biopsy or a cryptography castrate or something as well. But normally we get two ovariectomies done per day. Um, and then, yeah, we leave them after day two, just comfortable um, to go. We, we tend to train two together just so that they've got each other for support, but they can always ring us if they need to. They've always got access to the website for well, three years afterwards um, and then just ongoing support as needed. So I think it's that hands on just being there to kind of rally the whole team. And um, we do a presentation for their client facing team as well while we're there. So we'll sit everyone down for 45 minutes or so and just go through a video so a lot of the receptionists will never know what these procedures are and then they're not going to recommend them so if they don't know what it is they don't put them in and then the surgeons don't get many and then they don't get as confident so it's just getting it all going in one go for them so the more procedures come in the door straight after we leave the better the more confident they get it's actually such a good shout training the support staff as well with regards to procedures really really good because they they're so forgotten mm -hmm. about yeah the yeah. better understanding they have the better they feel able to recommend it to the clients so I think that's really smart and um, just talking about the simulator yeah. what is that what does it consist of I'm really intrigued as to what it looks like um they it's the one that we use is used for human um training actually so it, it's basically a, a white plastic box with a webcam that you attach to a laptop um and then you do all sorts of different games with it so it comes with a few different pads that you can practice um practice threading and, and that sort of thing um and then we'll get practices to do simple things like sugar cube stacking and you know just knowing 
how to open and close the instruments when they're 30 centimetres away from your hands and how to pick things up and put them one on top of the other. Simple as that. Blow up a balloon and then cut up, you know, blow up another one around it and cut one layer off the other. It's like doing pericardectomy. So lot of fun things you can do. <laughs> it's just the same. Did you make it yourself? Um, no, we've looked into making them, but you, we buy them from another company and um, they're not overly expensive and it's better than the ones that we've tried to make. So some practice and what I was taught with Rory actually was just a cardboard box with the actual scope, you know, the, the actual um, scope that we were using into it with the instruments. Well, when I was there on work experience, that's what he set up for me. But um, most of our practices either won't have their kit yet or don't want to risk the fancy scope getting broken so <laughs> using the the cheaper webcam version is sensible for the initial training I think. I was going to ask the um we've mentioned a lot of times now this sort of the kit and and the differences just just going sort of completely kind of to basics for it what what is different about a laparoscope and an endoscope is a laparoscope just an endoscope or is it is it where, where's the differences come in and what do what additional things do baby practices have to consider in terms of the kit that they maybe wouldn't think of if they're already using kind of flexible endoscopy or something for something like a kind of um, a gastroscope or something how, how does it differ yeah, absolutely. So I guess endoscopy encompasses all of this and you've got flexible endoscopy and rigid endoscopy. So laparoscopy is rigid endoscopy. So um, just using a rigid scope to look into the abdomen. Um, practices that have already got flexible um, endoscopy, depending on how up to date the kit is, it may be interchangeable with some of the connections that are needed for the um the, the rigid scopes so sometimes the camera system will work sometimes the light system will work but it really depends on what the individual practices have and we all know a lot of vet practices all kind of amalgamated from over the years so that's where we can sometimes help with that sometimes we've never seen these things before and we've got good connections with the reps from the different companies that will happily kind of go in and have a look as well um, and they were you know generally will try and amalgamate things together if we can um, some of the main differences, so um, an insufflator is essential for laparoscopy, so we'll use carbon dioxide to insufflate the abdomen um, to create a, a gap so we can see, basically. So that's not something practices would usually have. Um, some practices will have an electrocautery machine already if they're using monopolar or, um, or bipolar open surgical instruments, but often that's quite a new thing for practices as well, so um, there's loads of different options for um, electrocautery units um, from, from basic up to very advanced. So, yeah, well, again, we'll talk them through what might work for them depending on the sort of um, surgeons that they have and, and maybe other surgeries that they might, they might be looking at doing as well. Um, but, yeah, some of it can be very new and some practices will need an entire new setup even if they have got flexible endoscopy just because the, you know, the screens and things just don't work together. So, And, again, starting from the basics, as, as Sam did, what advice would you give a practice that are interested in um, setting up a laparoscopic service? One of the first things that puts people off is the investment um, and the cost. And whether they're an independent or a corporate practice, that's always a concern to the people that are talking to us. And it can seem like a big investment when you first look at it, you know, on paper, whatever the investment may be, anything from 20 to 50,000 pounds sometimes, it seems like a lot. But once we have the conversation with the practices, it's one of the quickest returns on investment that you can have in practice. So it will usually pay itself back quicker than 
dental x-ray or you know a nice ultrasound machine or something like that because it is something that you can do day in day out you put a supplement onto every bitch spay you're going to be doing those every single day and usually just on bitch spays alone even if they're just doing one or two a week um of the keyhole spays it will pay itself back within a couple of years and then you can start to add in your more advanced stuff so charge more for you know liver biopsies the cryptorchid castrates we're doing quite a few of the um, lap-assisted gastropexies now as well. So all these extra things that you can add to your toolkit, which you can charge more for. But even in a small two-vet practice, usually it will pay itself back within a couple of years, even though it seems like quite a big investment. And you're turning your loss leader bitch space into something that can be profitable as well, um, which is massive for vet practice. You know, and we've stopped doing the... Um, traditional space at our practice and we realized that it was actually costing us more to do the routine space you know the open space because we were spending a lot on as we should pain relief and paying you know the odd one that has the post-op infections and that sort of thing that just doesn't happen with the keyhole space so um yeah we weren't doing many anyway but that was a decision that we were proud to make it's so true actually and um, there's there's a loss made on routine surgery especially the open abdomen yeah. routine surgery so yeah being able to price it appropriately yeah. and it be a lovely service for the pets feels quite nice as well it feels it feels good for the practice and good for the pets as well doesn't it do you yeah. find that with um just doing an ovariectomy with laparoscopes that is actually translating into people just doing um open ovariectomies um as a sort of compromise almost between the two in practice because I saw yeah. that when I was locoming I wondered if it would. It's not, I mean, I only work in one place and we just do the keyholes. It's not something that I've I've heard of. I, I thought it might. And certainly with all the studies coming out that show that obviously, as we know, if you take the whole ovary out, you don't have any issues to leave the uterus behind. Um, but I think it's like anything. We just stick to what we know, don't we? And I mean, if I'm doing an open cat spay, I still remove most of the uterus and I don't know why. <laughs> but I'll do a keyhole cat spay and just take the ovaries. It's just you just go back to what you're used to, don't you? I mean, I don't spend as much time trying to get down to the cervix anymore, but I just take the uterus that I can get a hold of because I don't know why. It's just what you're used to, isn't it? So I think that's, it's interesting. And I, I do hear more, you, maybe people that have come from abroad where it's more normal to do an open ovariectomy, I certainly hear of, of them here. We know it doesn't cause any issue. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I did wonder if we would start to see them more here, but it seems to be people are either doing them keyhole or the traditional open ovary hysterectomy we do laparoscopic assisted ovary hysterectomies if we need to as well so if we go and see that the uterus looks abnormal when we go in there then we can put an extra port in and remove the whole uterus uh, so generally um whenever you're you're teaching your techniques for laparoscopic bitch space are we doing a two-port technique a three-port technique what's what's the story we teach two-port as standard um we have had the occasional practice where some one of the surgeons has been on a course already and then they've got us in afterwards just to do some extra training for them and um, just to get their confidence up doing their first live ones and if they've been taught three-port and they're desperate to still do it that way then we will teach them that but we just find we're trying to teach people to be fairly self-sufficient in general practice because who in general practice has a spare nurse to stand and hold the camera for you for however long it takes you to do your first few spays you know so when you're comfortable with them it might only take you 12 minutes but for the first few it's going to take you a long time so um we definitely try and and you know say to practices that it you know it's perfectly safe possible and 
swift and efficient to do it with with one person and do it two ports there's the occasional time and definitely we teach them how to do a three port technique for if you do need to convert you know if you do need to remove the whole uterus or if very very rarely if you drop something you know if you've cut cauterized and cut and it's still oozing it can be helpful to put a third port in just to hold you know use your forceps to hold up something that you want to cauterize um i'll tend to use a three port technique if i'm doing an ovarian remnant surgery just so you can kind of use your bab your forceps to move it around and get around the remnants um but most of the procedures are you know the cryptorchid castrates the liver biopsies the ovariectomies we all teach two port um and it's it's very easily done mostly with an ovariectomy hook to hold the ovary up but if practices don't have that then you can use just suture material um, which works just as well. It just can be a little bit more fiddly sometimes. You know, it's really interesting to hear more about the technique. Sorry, I've had a question about something when we were talking about before about kit. Um, you're saying you need an insulator for carbon dioxide. Is the reason you use carbon dioxide yeah. because you're using quartery and you want something that isn't yeah. flammable? Is that why? That's exactly why, yep. So um, yeah. it's, that, that makes, a, it's, it's very logical. <laughs> Yep. So it's not flammable and it absorbs into the body. So if you leave any behind, it's not going to cause emboli and that sort of thing. So so is there no, with it being carbon dioxide, you see it's absorbed, there's not, it's not at the quantities where it would have any kind of metabolic kind of potential effects then it can't kind no, of cause so we have a multi- pH imbalance or anything like that. No, we, we did wonder that and we've started using multi-parameter monitoring fairly recently with capnography and things in our, well, I say recently, in the last few years in our practice. And I did wonder if we would see higher um, CO2 in those patients, but we don't at all. So it doesn't appear to be increasing their expired CO2 or anything, which I guess you would expect it to if it was increasing the um, the metabolic CO2. So yeah, it doesn't seem to cause any effect. The only thing we do occasionally see because we're... Um, putting some pressure inside the abdomen although it's low pressure there is some pressure there so we just recommend sighing the patient every few minutes just to sort of fully inflate the lungs um to make sure that we're not leaving any um aselectasis and things like that but so, so that's really interesting and then so the ports are the ports effectively completely sealed where the instruments go in there's no the gas can't escape through those incisions no, exactly. So when we put the ports in, we're either using um, trocars or we make a small incision and some of the ports you kind of screw in almost like a corkscrew, depending on the type of ports that you've got. So that will create a seal with the abdominal wall. And then all of the ports will have um, seals within them, trap doors that will open as you put your instruments in and then a, a rubber seal at the top that is um, flush with the, the diameter of the instrument. Sometimes we'll use bigger ports if we've got a bigger dog than when we've put an 11 millimetre port in because it's easier to get the ovary out of the bigger hole. But then we'll use a reducer for five millimetre instruments. So um, most of the bigger ports will come with a reducer for smaller instruments anyway. That's that's really interesting. It's just fascinating. As I said, I've not, it's not a technique that I've had a lot of experience of because it's not something I mean practice. So it's great to hear about the technique. Talking about troll cars being screwed in is reminding me of putting them in rumens, like the, the red exactly. ones. Exactly. The classic <laughs> is just screwing it in through the side from there, which is probably the closest I've come to that experience as well. Um, the last thing I was going to ask about Kit, um, just for now, um, I won't promise not to keep asking more questions, um, is uh, the... Um, the 
the uh, the viewing devices. So are people viewing this on a monitor or do people have, is there sort of different things? Do people sometimes wear, wear kind of goggles or a headset or is, it, is there different ways to, to watch what you're doing? I've only ever seen monitors. Um, so there's different setups people will have. So the, the very nice theatres will have a monitor like you see in the human theatres, a monitor on each wall so your surgeon never has to crit a neck or anything like that. Um, most practices will have a stack. So they'll we'll put the stack at the head of the patient, basically, and then we'll stand on one side to operate and look to the side and then stand on the other side to operate and look to the other side. And the stack will have all of your equipment on it. So you'll have your monitor at the top, your light source. Sometimes the light source is combined with the monitor these days as well. Um, and then you'll have your insufflator so you can see the pressures that are reading and keep an eye on that while you're operating. And then your electric artery machine. Um, and then sometimes a recording device and that sort of thing, depending on the setup the practice has gone for. No, that's great. Thank you. No, no, it's really interesting. And I'm just about to ask, and it's not that vets are competitive at all, but what's <laughs> the average time of an overectomy with doing keyhole compared to, because with doing a traditional spare, we all kind of have an average of what, what we will say I won't say because it'd probably be much slower than Sam Amy and yourself Becky um but what's the average time taken um when you're doing a keyhole spay it usually depends on the study that you the studies that you look at um the most common one I've seen around is about 18 minutes um and, and I would say that's that's fairly standard um it it take some time you know it's like when you first do a bitch spay it's going to take you two hours when you first do a keyhole spay it's probably going to take you an hour and a half two hours but by the time you get to your 10th it'll probably take you under an hour and then by the time you get your 20th it's probably going to take you half an hour and when you get your thousandth like I am then it's you know 12 minutes for a little cockapoo or something like that you know so and a lot of that is your team around you as well so that's where that comes in with our training is we want you know if you're constantly having to tell the nurse what to plug in where and what to open for you when of course it's going to take longer um but if your team's swift and you're swift then you know and safe then uh, then that it, it's perfectly feasible to do it in that time i'd say on average it takes the same or less time to do a keyhole spay than it would do to do an open space so your big fatty labrador might take you an hour to do an open spay. It'll probably take you 40 minutes to do a keyhole spay. Um, but your little skinny thing is probably going to take you 10, 15 minutes, you know, so. Well, no, that's really interesting. And it all plays towards having less anaesthetic time and an overall just improved care for the patient. Yep. And a more efficient day if you can get the kit turned yeah. around and everything. Yeah, exactly. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. I love the way Harriet was chatting about bitch spay times. Like we haven't all three of us been in a line spaying bitches together in Gambia and all found that we're roughly the same amount of time <laughs> taken to do it. <laughs> um I did a I did a journal club recently, um, which compared a regular two port laparoscopic ovariectomy with a transvaginal single port technique. Yeah. Yeah, have you yeah. come across that technique in practice at all? Have you had a look at it yourself or anything like that? Not in practice, no. It's been mentioned in courses that I've done. So I've done a couple of courses with Romain Peasy, who's quite big in the UK in veterinary laparoscopy. So um, he travels all over the world um, performing laparoscopic procedures on wild animals and um, 
biofarm bears and all these incredible and um, so yeah he's done a, a few different single port procedures i mean he describes a single port procedure he did in a giant tortoise because you can't get much access with ports in them so he did single ports um but yeah i think a lot of it in in general practice it's about finding techniques that are safe and efficient and a lot of the single port things you get instruments that kind of they go through the port and then they go at an angle and they come back in again and it makes you can do it but it's really difficult for your brain to get around that whereas if you've got instruments that you're used to using they're just 30 centimeters long instead of 10 all these things it just makes it a bit safer and more efficient so um yeah I don't think there's much advantage to one versus two ports no, it was, it was just quite an interesting technique um, that sort of mm. trans-cavity or trans-corporeal techniques are sort of the next stage of where laparoscopic procedures are going in people because uh, it kind of gives access to the body in a slightly different way. Um, and I, yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite an interesting one. But just from following on from Harriet's question about how long a two-port laparoscopic bitch spay takes, I think the author was um, an expert in that field and his were taking about anywhere between 12 and 18 minutes. So exactly the same as you said, Becky. Um, I just remember exactly, that, being yeah. Yeah, that sort of amount of time. I think the other thing in humans as well is they do a lot, obviously, to try and reduce scarring. So that's where your, your transvaginal techniques and things come in. Um, whereas our patients don't care about scarring so um that's the other thing because they'll, they'll do a lot of procedures you know single port procedures in people using the um belly button for example again just to try and reduce the scarring um but it is nothing to our patients to have two ports that aren't going through the umbilicus because that's the more sensible place to put them so um yeah there's a, a bit of difference in that i think as well so is the world of accessories for a laparoscope as busy and confusing as the world of accessories for your flexible endoscopes? Um, yes. <laughs> um, yes and no. I think there's, if you start, I guess we always kind of say to people, these are the more common, if you're talking about the bipolar instruments, for example, there's loads of different options out there we kind of say these are the more common ones these are the pros and cons of them you know some of it comes down to whether you can autoclave them or not in general practice you know whether they're reusable or not makes a huge difference to general practice um and what it's going to connect to and what how much you're going to have to spend on your electrical machine depending on what you go for so there's a lot of different options i mean there's lots of different biopsy forceps you can get so specific liver biopsy pancreas biopsy kidney biopsy forceps all these things um and then you can start to look into monopolar, which isn't something that we have a great deal to do with, to be honest. But when you start to do more advanced procedures, um, adrenalectomies and um, removing gallbladders and that sort of thing, then a lot of those will be done by using monopolar instruments. And the world's your oyster as far as they're concerned, from what I can see. Um, I think the scope options are quite straightforward um so you know zero degrees 30 degrees varying lengths varying diameters um and then getting sheaths for them to be able to use them for arthroscopy rhinoscopy cystoscopy all these things so that's a maybe a bit more straightforward but i guess it's just what you're familiar with as well so so it's, it's really interesting hearing a bit more about the kind of the the kit and the technique and and everything that people can do and and for a lot of practices 
there's going to be a lot of places that, do, that don't have laparoscopy and kind of getting it is a, a big a big step on its own but because we like to look at the kind of technology and the way it's changing and we do it with sort of ultrasound and CT and C things, I was just really interested, what's the kind of, what are you seeing as the next thing in kind of laparoscopy? Sort of what's what's coming through that you're that's kind of excited that might kind of transition into practice? And in the same way, I suppose, the example we'd maybe talk about a bit is this sort of impact of artificial intelligence for some other imaging things. What's the, um, what might be kind of coming through from out there sort of the human medicine that you think might come into vet or those kind of things would be quite interesting to know i think one of the big interesting things is the robotic surgery but i mean these you know machines are millions of pounds so whether they're going to go anywhere near veterinary anytime soon who knows but that's all very interesting you know the thought that you could have a team of surgeons set up for for example an adrenalectomy which I've done a couple of times in a cadaver on one of these advanced courses, but I've never braved doing one in, in a patient myself. You know, if you could, if I could set everything up for a surgeon in the States to then get the robot and do it from there, I think that would be really interesting um, and open up a lot of procedures for our patients that would be more affordable that way. You know, obviously if you've got the robot, but if we could have a couple in the UK that patients could be taken to rather than, um a having to have open surgery or be the expense of traveling and things um obviously it depends on the individual but that i think that's really exciting definitely the robotic side of things um and then from the training side of things um i think a lot of that is the kind of virtual reality stuff is quite exciting so whether you could train people to um you know you can set up a virtual reality headset and then you've got a surgeon that's already done the procedure and you could watch the headset for the surgeon with the procedure would be really exciting that's right no i i was going to say that it's it's really interesting to hear about these things coming forward i'm just thinking about the way you're talking about sort of surgeons to get their robot it's like you you've got to hope the internet connection's good it's that like uh, if they yeah. really doing it remotely, it's like, <laughs> do I think about the, sometimes the trouble that we have doing a Zoom call? I don't think I'd like to have a thought of somebody kind of internet controlling or then sort of a robot kind of doing an operation on me at the same time. But hey, we'll see what we'll see what happens. Anything's possible. That's true. I tried to do a Teams lunch and learn during the week. And uh, I mean, it was fine. But there were a number of technical hitches. I thought, how can I not use Teams after three years of COVID meetings and Yes, there's always a glitch of some sort, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, no, it it, it does it does it happen a lot, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it would be uh, going forward. It'll be better when these other things are in practice. I think so. We'll see. I just wanted to ask if you've come across any myths in the years that you've been doing veterinary laparoscopy and that you've had to debust as you've uh, been going yeah, along. Yeah, I love a bit of uh, myth busting. Um, yeah, I think the main one is it's not so common anymore. To be fair, I think hopefully we've got the education out there a bit more. But when we were initially exhibiting and things, it was, you know, I can do a bitch space through a tiny hole. So why would I bother doing keyhole? Um, and and that's that has been really common. Um, and I think the main thing with that is that the pain is not caused by the size of the hole. The pain is caused by the stretching of the suspensory ligament. So if you're not doing that, you know, you're better off almost having a bigger hole and not stretching your suspensory ligament. But 
Um, I think that's where the, the pain is proven to come from. You know, during the surgery, obviously that's when they get their spike in heart rate. They start to um, come a bit light sometimes with their anesthesia in a routine spay. And then post-operatively as well, that seems to give them the, the bellyache post-op. Um, you know, when they're lying, they're not wanting to get up and things and painful for a few days afterwards. It's not because they've got a big scar. It's because they've they've had that stretching there. So um, that's one of the main things I think that we have to discuss with people. Um also, the worry about leaving the uterus behind when we talk about ovariectomies. So, again, you know, I've had vet nurses phone me saying that they're considering getting their bitch keyhole spayed from another practice, but they're not sure about it because they don't want to leave the uterus behind. And, um, you know, vets and vet nurses will ask us these questions. And once you explain that you're actually less likely to get any complications because you're less likely to leave an ovarian remnant behind because you can see what you're doing. Um, you know, you're as likely to get a stump pyo as you are to get a pyo in a, uh, an ovariectomy if you leave any ovary behind. So, so long as you don't leave the ovary behind, we know that the uterus goes away to nothing. And having done them for all this time now as well, it's interesting when we go in and we'll maybe do an X lap for a foreign body on a patient that's had a keyhole spay a couple of years ago and their uterus has literally shriveled away to nothing. It's, it's, it, I always go and have a look just out of interest. So, uh, <laughs> if we're X lapping them for any reason. Um, so obviously all the studies are there, but I always find that quite interesting if we're doing an X lap for a sock or something daft. So yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, and I, I guess the other big thing is the cost. You know, people assume in practice that people that their clients won't want to go for it because you know we all think that we're not in a um, a well done a well to do area or something like that. We all think our clients are going to struggle with the cost and that really is not something we see you know we're not in a, an affluent area we're we're on the outskirts of edinburgh but we're not not in an affluent area at all and certainly it's such a cultural thing for us now you know the clients know from the minute they come in the door with their eight-week-old female dog this is a key hospital this is what we do this is when we do it this is how much it costs so they've got time to save up for it and if they want to if they, they decide they want to get that done, they don't have to get it done there and then, you know, it's not a sudden thing. So they've got time to save up, even wait till after the next season and they can do it once they've had time to save up for it. So we don't find that that's a massive um, issue for clients at all, which is really something that a lot of vets will come to us and be concerned that their client their clients wouldn't pay for it. But if ours do, I think everyone's would. So... Is the timing for a laparoscopic spay around the season as crucial as it is for when you're doing it sort of laparotomy style? Ideally, we go for similar. Um, again, we go for the sort of three to four month mark. Ideally, you've got less um, vasculature with the ovaries and everything. So it's it's technically safer um, as we would for an open spay. And the timing as far as a false pregnancy goes is no different. So if they're in a false pregnancy, you don't want to remove their ovaries anyway. So that's just the same. The flexibility there comes with the fact that if we do have dogs that have more frequent seasons or we've got a dog where we're unsure if they are about to come into season or, you know, you'd be a bit scared to spay them in case it was really vascular, really vascular in there. Um, I've been more confident doing those patients. And certainly, you know, we work with a, a few rescue charities where we spay them. And we've got no idea and we'll go in keyhole and you can see that they look more vascular than, than the normal timing ones. Um, but because you're using cautery, because you've got such good visualisation, you're much more confident in in doing those procedures so um yeah it theoretically it's the same and we would tend to time them the same if we can but if we've got anywhere patient you know clients are struggling with timing their seasons or the the patient does seem to have irregular seasons then we'll do them um much more comfortably than we maybe would have done them if they had to be open 
Thank you. That's that's cool. I've got um, one more question. Um, I've got a friend who uh, does soft tissue surgery and she deals with complications of ureter ligation a lot um, in her job. And right. I'm assuming that the risk of that happening, the incidence of that happening is lower with laparoscopic space because you can see, visualize better what you're doing and lift the ovary in front yeah. of you and see the pedicle in front of you and not have to to go in and pick up a stump that's bleeding in effect yeah you're you nailed yeah you've hit the nail on the head there exactly so you go in you find your ovary you pick it up you hook it up away from the kidney and then you cauterize and cut below it and every time you hold the tissue to cauterize you pick it up a little bit so you're lifting it even further up away from the kidney you know so very very little chance it's not something i've ever seen or have heard of in any of the practices that we've trained um touch wood <laughs> um but yeah you can see what you're doing you know you you'd struggle to guzzle around in there and find a ureter i think you're very much going in finding the anatomy that you want and removing it because you can see really well i'm not sure if you mentioned it earlier but what is the complication rate with laparoscopic space um and what are if there are if there is any is there what are the most frequent complications that you may get i think that's a really good question actually so i think as far as the actual overall complication rates it's really hard to find anything like that in the literature and i've i've just started doing an internal study um into how many we convert to open surgery because it's always something that a lot of practices will really say, and even some of, of our vets and nurses will really warn clients of this risk of having to convert to open surgery. And then I was at a conference, I was at Spiv's conference in January, and someone said to me, oh, yeah, I've heard this study that said that 10% of them are opened. And I was like, pardon? Um, you know, in my head, I thought I can think of three in 10 years that have been opened in my practice. I'm not sure how 10% when we've done about 4,000 of them. So um, I thought, okay, so now I've got myself all determined to prove that wrong. Um, so I've started going through, we changed practice management system sadly a couple of years ago. So I've got about 700, 800 maybe patients in a list now that I've started going through. Um, and so far I've found one that I think I'm over halfway through um, that we've opened. Um, and that was just because the uterus um, looked like it might be cancerous. So the vet decided to open so they could get good margins and everything um which in theory you could have done keyhole but I can completely see why you'd go in and find cancerous uterus and think I'm just going to get my hands on that um so yeah I think I've, I've got a way to go with that but I think uh, that's that's one thing that is talked about a lot and I'm hoping to publish something I don't do papers or anything like that but I'm hoping to do something to prove that wrong um I think complication rate wise um we did a couple of in-house studies a few years ago um Again, it depends what you class your complications as, but for us, it's really the dog has managed to get on its wound and it's opened up and it's needed a bit of skin glue and that sort of thing. And that probably sits down at around 5%. Very, I think maybe pushing 10%, depending on. We started to use those medical shirt things a few years ago. And that interestingly pushed the complication rate up because I think the shirts were rubbing the glue off. <laughs> So we had more coming in, all the shirts were irritating it and then they were licking the shirt. Um, so anyway, that was interesting because we thought, oh, these are really cute. We'll brand them and everything. But uh, no, we stopped using those fairly quickly. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably very minor complications like that that don't even require antibiotics. You just need a little clean and they get left to heal. Um, it's, it probably sits around 5% when we've looked into it in the past. Um, it's 
extremely rare the very occasional one I've maybe seen surgical complications would be if they get a little hernia so sometimes if you don't quite catch the muscle properly when you're stitching your little portholes they can get a little bit of protruding fat from the abdomen or something come through that and cause a little hernia um again because I've been doing them the longest in our practice I tend to be the one that's gone to if there is anything that looks unusual with the keyholes so I think I've maybe done two of those in the last sort of 10 years or so that have just for some reason the muscles not heal properly um but yeah really really rare and if anything it's just that they lick at their wound a little bit and they need a bit of glue or um the very occasional course of antibiotics is they've really race rubbed it along the carpet or something daft like that but it is very rare no no that's really interesting it's surprising how cute those pet shirts are but how often you get complications following surgery with them where they either suck the pet shirt or something else. <laughs> I think they're more fussed about the shirt itself than the actual op site. I yeah, I agree. I agree. I thought they were so cute and exciting, but no, exactly. We've had a patient eat one, need to be made sick. <laughs> yeah, they didn't last long anyway. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to wear something tight that was going to rub on some stitches after you'd had surgery yourself, would you? So it kind of. It makes sense as much as owners love yeah. them and the pets do look quite cute. And I like your idea for branding, but yeah. you know, I can imagine it. Well, we just made things yeah. uncomfortable for them. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So yeah, not necessary. We just leave them, leave them open to the air and they're fine after a couple of days. And I can see a, st- a study group of 700 is a, is a very good study group so far with only finding one complication. I was quite happy with that. Yeah, I thought, oh, I'm gonna, am I going to prove myself wrong here? And all the vets are actually opening them up and not telling me, but clearly not. As you say, there's a lot of papers that are published out there that have a have a tenth of a size of a, a you know, well, that study group. That. Yeah, yeah. I think I know the person that published the other study, so I'll get in touch with her and find out how she did hers. And because the other thing is, if you're looking into more, you know, maybe they're referral level ones that have been studied or more complex cases, then, you know, maybe you are more likely to, to have to open those for whatever reason. But I just wanted to do something that was just genuine day in, day out, general practice, standard ovariectomy space. And let's see what the open rate is. And yeah, it seems to be very low unless the lower half of the alphabet has lots more complications. So we'll see. <laughs> that would be a really unexpected bias. <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? All the Watsons have to have their dogs opened. I'll let you know. <laughs> do you, would you expect to have to? I'm just seeing the, the paper stats being like, oh, the risk of this procedure is significantly increased if your like last name begins with something from M to Z or something like that. I mean, that. you can make science say whatever you want it to, can't you? So. <laughs> I'll keep you updated on that one. Well, that's been really insightful. I'd just like to say a huge thank you to Becky for all the information you've shared about laparoscopy and to all our listeners for tuning in. Um, We'll be back next month for another episode of Focal Point. Until then, please check out all our resources on the IMV Imaging and the VESCO website. Um, And of course, check out Simply Keyhole for all the information that they provide. I'll let the team say goodbye themselves. But from me, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next month. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye, everybody.